listening to the podcast edition of One Love, One Planet. Good morning and thank you so much to Real Women for the past hour and now you're listening to One Love, One Planet with me, Penny Southgate, BCFM's environmental programme and it's just basically, it's all about all the bad stuff, climate breakdown, but it's also about all the good stuff, staying connected to our planet and putting into effect all those things that are going to make it better, which will also give us a better world. Um, We're going to be hearing, we've got a lot, a lot of people to hear from today. Um, And my virtual guest, he couldn't come into the studio uh, because he's based in Manchester, is Phil Corbell, and he is going to be talking about the Carbon Literacy project so if you don't know what carbon literacy is then stay tuned and we're going to be hearing from lots of other people uh we're from um from uganda we've got stuff going on in bristol um so that's all to come will you come down through your window and find me in the street i've been dying for some company Okay, we are going to start, as always, with the Almanac. The dandelions in our fields and gardens are at the end stage of their life cycle now. Most of the yellow flowers have closed up and done a costume change. The petals have disintegrated and been replaced by delicate white seeds, opening out to look like exploding mini fireworks. In the fields, centre stage is now taken by the delicate, long-stemmed buttercups and pink and white clover. In the sky, the moon is on the wane and its crescent will slowly get slimmer throughout this week. Tomorrow, in the very early morning before sunrise, you may be able to see the crescent moon near the giant planet Jupiter. Venus, Mars and Saturn will also be visible. On Friday, the moon will be very close to Venus, the morning star. Again, Jupiter, Mars and Saturn will also be visible. Swifts have returned to the UK, having spent the winter in the far shores of Africa and are now nesting. The numbers of swifts have been declining over the years because of a lack of suitable nesting sites due to the large urban regeneration schemes, including in Bristol. However, some builders are now including nest bricks in their new houses and this will help to boost the populations. So that's the end of today's almanac. I do love almanacs. Okay, right. We start today with a speech from um, from Hilda Flavia Nakabuye, who is from Uganda. She's a young activist. She's actually just completed her degree. So, Hilda, if you're listening, congratulations. I don't know how you do it. It's one thing to get a degree. It's another thing to get a degree when you're trying to save the planet and doing all the activism that you do. Um, Hilda started um, Fridays for Future Uganda. 
and I've been trying to get to talk to her, but she's so busy, I can't. And so we decided that the best thing is for me to play one of her speeches. She's made lots of speeches. She's been on lots of sort of high-profile panels of big sort of global events. And this particular speech is taken from COP25, um, which was in Madrid. And it's still relevant now. Um, So this is Hilda with her impassioned plea. Thank you. Uh, First of all, I am happy to be here because I am among the few young people who made it from the global south. I do not understand why most, the most affected countries are always underrepresented. Government officials are, of course, Government officials are, of course, very many because they follow the huge allowances that come with such meetings. I do not know. I did not come here for any allowance, and I don't expect any. I came here to represent millions of African young people who are bearing the brunt of climate crisis. I am here to speak for all generations to come. As I speak to you right now, extreme weather events are killing people in my country. I'm very disturbed that Western media is silent on the climate emergency happening in Uganda and the whole of East African region. I am the voice of the dying children, displaced women, and people suffering at the hands of climate crisis created by rich countries. Voices from the global south deserve to be heard. Animals, forests, fish, and birds from Africa may not count to you as they do to us, but at least make us count. We are humans who, des- we are humans who do not deserve to suffer a crisis that we did not create. The British named my country the Pearl of Africa, and I've been dreaming of seeing the meaning of this. But every day that passes, our rainforests are cleared, clean air polluted, and wildlife attacked. Climate climate injustice forced me to risk my education and fight for everyone. I rather fail my exams than fail my generation. You should understand what we pass through every day. African climate activists are determined to continue fighting for climate justice even when no one cares to pay attention. Our interest is not in attention but action from leaders and everyone. What will I tell my next generation if they ask me where I was and what I did when nature was being destroyed by selfish and greedy individuals. Stop being self-centered and treat all lives equal. Why are we acting as if we still have time? We all talk of climate emergency, but we don't act like there's any. Dear leaders, we need leadership on climate action, not talks.
for how long will you keep negotiating? You've been negotiating for the last 25 years, even before I was born. Do you want the whole Africa to first perish before you start acting? Do you even care if we all drowned in floods? If you don't know how to resurrect a dead person, then why are you polluting us with toxic air? If you can't bring back forests that once grew where they was, there is now a desert, why are you backing timber business in Gabon? I will end with a quote from Suzuki. He said, if you don't know how to fix it, please stop breaking it. Every Friday, we continue to go on the streets and strike for our future. We, don't, we do not end on that. Me and my friends in my country and other countries in the global south and other countries around the world continue to do what we can do best to fight for our future. I engage in a luxury cleanup activity on the second largest freshwater lake we have in our country and in the world. And I do this with all my heart and with love for the coming generation. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much, Hilda. Oh, the, the first time I heard Hilda give that speech, it just made me cry. Um, Hilda, if you're listening, I know it may be hard to believe, um, but there are lots of us in the global north who do care and do try and pay attention to what's happening um, and are trying to do something about it. And in fact, there are quite a few voices in this program that I hope will reassure you on that front. Um, and actually, I had a message from um, a Bristol resident, Laura, um, that I think I'd quite like to play now. Um, so that, yeah, Hilda, you can see people are trying to do things on lots of different levels. And if you listen later on and hear what Phil has got to say as well, um, yeah, I hope you will feel a little bit reassured. It's, it was an amazing speech and thank you very much. Okay, so yeah, as I say, um, uh, this message coming up is from a Bristol resident, Laura, and I'm just going to let her tell you about it. Hello, I'm Laura and I'm a supporter of the Just Stop Oil campaign. We need to talk now about what we do about the climate crisis. What we do in the next three to four years will determine the future of humanity. That's a quote by Sir David King, former chief scientific advisor to the UK government last year. So we have two to three years to try to stop the worst climate change disaster that we could imagine. But we each have a voice and we can all decide to act before it really is too late. But what is it we need to do? Come and hear ordinary neighbours explain why they are worried about climate breakdown and what they are managing to do about it. Meet some of those risking their safety and their freedom to defend our children growing up in a threatened world. There will be a talk aimed at adults given by locals supporting the Just Stop Oil campaign and then any questions answered. Let's forget the media and talk honestly 
This is our last chance and we must make it matter together. The next talk is coming up at Zion on Bishopsworth Road on Bedminster Down between 7 and 9 o'clock on Thursday the 26th of May. Please come, hear what we have to say and see if you too would like to stand up for our future. Thank you so much for getting in touch, Laura. Um, and yes, as she said, it's just, it's just ordinary people who are doing this. Um, everybody is, is sort of fighting this battle in their own different way. Well, not everybody. There are, unfortunately, loads and loads of people who might have the capacity to do something. It, it's so clear that so many people, especially today, don't have any spare capacity um, because you're just trying to make ends meet um, or working all the hours that God sends. Um, but there are probably lots of people who do have a bit of spare capacity, even if it's simply emailing your MP. Um, something like that can go a long way because if an MP is bombarded by loads of emails, they, they listen they uh, it, they get noticed those emails um so laura yeah thank you so much for getting in touch um and i've just been joined in the studio by sam sayer hello sam don't worry you don't i'm not going to suddenly land you in it but i just thought well if you wanted to say anything do how are hello, you hello penny i'm very well it's nice to be sitting in and observing and all of that yeah yeah, yeah. well if you want to say anything at any point do just yeah well on that little point about um people making small changes maybe the doable changes even if they feel like life is really difficult i've done that with my how i wash my clothes and so i'm now using an egg type thing with little balls in and i'm not sure what they're made of i'm afraid i'll have to find that out and they st- my clothes still are very, very clean. And it means I'm not buying loads of bottles of whatever, a, a washing liquid. And, yeah, and these, these, um, this little egg, I just stick it in the drum and it goes on for a long time. But so, hang, is there detergent in the egg? No, it's like, they're like so some weird. kind of sort of soap balls. Oh, okay, yeah. okay, right. So no nuts, packaging as such. But no packaging at all. Just came Brilliant. in a cardboard box. Um, and you buy the bits that go inside and you shove it in your drum and your washing comes out clean. And it just means, you know, you don't have to use fabric conditioner. You don't have to use all those huge bottles of, pl- you know, plastic bottles mm. with the liquid in. Um, yeah. Fantastic. I know. What was the name again? Can you remember? It's, or I will find, we find out? out. We'll find out. We'll find out. Yeah. Um, brilliant. And actually, on that note, I saw Deborah Meaden on Twitter say Love that... Deborah yeah, she's she makes quite a noise. It's good. Yeah. Um, she's one of the dragons on Dragon's Den, in case you don't know her name. And she says that she only ever uses half a dishwasher tablet. I thought that was interesting. If you could just halve the amount of um, detergent going into the water um, supply, that would be good. Um, Right, okay, it is time for a bit of good news supplied to me by by Lissy, Lissy Porter, who's back, which is fantastic. Um, So she's written these up for me, which is brilliant. Um, Because we need some good news of things that are happening. British cities... Some British cities are becoming mini Hollands as part of the government's active travel plans to encourage walking and cycling. 19 local authorities, including Manchester, Hull and Nottinghamshire, 
are to get government funds for segregated bike lanes, traffic calming and residential streets blocked to cars. It's part of a 200 million extension of the government's 2 billion active travel plans to encourage cycling and walking. I mean, oh uh, yeah, you know, I keep saying it again, stuck record. Um, the more sort of cities we have, more roads we have closed off to cars, the better really. Um, and this was big, big news in Australia. Um, with the election result. Um, Australia's new leader has vowed to take the country in a new direction with a big shift in climate policy. Anthony Albanese, who won Saturday's election with the opposition centre-left Labour Party, said Australian could become a renewable energy superpower. Climate change was a key concern for for voters after three years of record-breaking bushfire and flood events. Mr Albanese, who will be heading Australia's first Labour government in almost a decade, also promised to adopt more ambitious emissions targets. And one of the best things is that um, I think he doesn't have a full majority. And so it's the Green Party who I think hold um, the sort of balance of power, which is just fantastic. So... Because I've seen so much um, sort of agonised stuff coming from Australian Twitter climate people just despairing over the last couple of years. And now everyone's just sounding so much happier uh, now that they're going to be on a more positive path. So that is brilliant. Um, And finally, the river town of Mongla um, in the Bay of Bengal is leading the way in a project to resettle people in a region decimated by extreme weather. Mongla is the gateway to the UNESCO-listed Sundarbans mangrove forest. Its port, founded in the 1950s, has been the focus of an ambitious decade-long project led by one of the world's leading climate scientists to transform it into a town that actively welcomes climate refugees. Catastrophic weather events are speeding up the waves of people flowing into the urban centres to Mongla. Its population was below 40,000 in the 2011 census, but a decade later, three times as many people are thought to be living there. So they could prove to be a really good model, um, because inevitably um, migration is going to go up, I think, um, over the next decade. Not, I think it, it, it will do. It already is. Right. Okay. Very coming up. Very very shortly, we've got we're going to be hearing from Phil Corbell and finding out all about the carbon literacy project. Okay, carbon literacy. What is that, you might ask? Um, Right, I caught up with Phil Corbell um, a few days ago, um, actually thinking he was going to come into the studio and then discovered he was in Manchester. So we thought, oh, we'd better pre-record a conversation. Um, And Phil has done 
lots and lots of things, loads of things. He's he's worked in radio. He's had a very successful career in radio, and actually, I might say, is is kind of partially responsible for our existence as a radio station, um, because he was the moving force uh, behind the media charity Radio Regen, um, which was behind. That's that's one of the reasons why BCFM was set up. Um, so thank you, Phil, if you're listening. And he also did loads of other stuff, but he co-founded the Carbon Literacy Project along with David Coleman. Um, and here he is to tell us all about it. So carbon literacy is an awareness of the climate crisis and particular of your impacts on it alongside the ability to tackle it and the motivation to do so. Mm-hmm. So it's those three things, your awareness, ability and motivation to do your best thing to tackle the climate crisis. And we deliver it in the shape of a day's worth of very relevant, very action-focused training that can happen anywhere. It can happen in a workplace, in a school, in a university or a community. And we and our parent charity, the Carbon Literacy Trust, are running this and we enable people to use this framework for training um, pretty much anywhere. We're really trying to create a large-scale shift in our culture, basically, in the way we think and do things. Amazing. It sounds really good. How long have you been going for? We're going to celebrate our 10th birthday in October. Right. And uh, jumping ahead slightly, do you have any idea at all of the impact you've had? On one side of the coin, we do, and on one side of the coin, we don't. The, the bit where we don't yet have the data is how much greenhouse gas is saved, is prevented from getting into the atmosphere. And it is basically clear that that would be very complex for what we're doing. Mm. One day we'll do that big research project. Um, in the meanwhile, there's an engineering consultancy called Jacobs. So they've looked at what, they, what we do, and there's consistent reports back and research showing how it lifts people's motivation and confidence to act. And they've given us an estimate that it should save between 5 and 15% of energy use in an average workplace. Wow. Which I'm quite sort of happy about, actually, Penny, because that feels right. A, a motivated group of people will save energy. And we hear it time and time again. People that say, I was working with a guy yesterday, actually, um, who now leads sustainability in a very well-known international broadcast company. And he said, well, I used to be an accountant um, with some interest in this, and I did carbon literacy, and... Now I'm heading up sustainability for this, this huge uh, organisation. Could you possibly take us through briefly what a typical session might constitute, might, might be? The carbon literacy standard is our framework. Any carbon literacy course has to conform to this course framework. And it's split up into the things you learn, the way you learn them, something about the values inherent in what it does, and, it, and there's a piece on action. In the things that you learn, 
there's the science. Um, what is uh, the greenhouse effect? What's the carbon cycle? What happens when it gets out of kilter? Um, we look at a bit about regulation, the international stuff that's coming from the COP conferences, right the way down to your local climate emergency declaration, and particularly what your organization is doing. Um, we look at footprints, which generally we start with um, some domestic footprint work. What is a carbon footprint? What's a carbon budget? Then we look at relevant case studies, the best practice uh, for your area, your sector, etc. And everything concludes with uh, people devising actions, the best actions they can make. There is also uh, a learning outcome on communication, enabling you to uh, communicate this to people around you. Um, we ask organizations to maximize peer-to-peer -peer delivery, as in it should be someone, one of your colleagues doing this, or you, indeed, because, um, frankly, it's more credible than some outside expert. Um, we ask that it's uh, collaborative, that you work in groups with your peers on this as well, and that it's relevant, relevant, relevant all the way through. It should start with a strong statement of relevance. Why are we asking you to do this climate stuff? Very much about us. We also do a lot on co-benefits. In other words, the, the good stuff that happens when you act on climate. If you have uh, fewer petrol and diesel cars, you have cleaner air, dot, dot, dot. Less mm. sick people, less hospital beds being taken up with preventable illnesses, mm. etc. One thing that occurs to me that I find really interesting, do you talk about the, 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 the sort of relative importance of an individual doing something to sort out their carbon footprint versus um, the sort of big organisations like, you know, fossil fuel industry, yes. for example? You, you do talk yes. about that, uh, right? So this is about that overlap between the individual and society at large. Um, I think that this uh, quite persistent uh, thing that um, it's not about individuals, it's about system change, um, is a red herring. Uh, because how can we have system change without engaged individuals? And that engaged, that engagement process often starts with individual action. The penny drops. Um, there's a well-documented uh, phenomenon that values follow action. I think uh, um, when uh, recycling was mandated with the bringing in of curbside collections, the uh, clear, clear uh, statistics that show the support for recycling shot through the roof because people were doing it. So I think we, my, my personal vision of this is that the thousands and thousands of carbon literate people will have an influence on those around them. That the carbon literate will be our activists, however you define activist. They will be our green consumers. They will be our green, whether big G or small G, our green voters. Mm. So I think that motivating of individuals to put climate much, much, much higher up their list of priorities 
is absolutely essential, and that's how we get the system change that we definitely need. Yeah, you're right. I mean, I think there are any number of levers, aren't there? And we have to sort of push and pull them all, I think, yes. um, to, to maximise our chances of, of dealing with this. Have you been able to deliver um, these sessions within the fossil fuel industry, for example? Um, we have a filter on who we will deal with. A filter that filters out corporations who are only interested in greenwash or indeed um, those organisations who, to be blunt, only exist to diminish our capacity to live a safe life. Um, so on that basis, uh, before the um, the atrocious aggression, the war in Ukraine, um, we did uh, politely decline an invitation from a Russian fossil fuel uh, company. Um, however sincere the, their, their British representatives might have been, we felt that, um, speaking personally, the only way to have a carbon literate fossil fuel company is for it not to exist. Um, now, the other set of people that I I would... Well, it would be amazing if you had talked to them uh, is the RMPs, of course. Yes. Have you... We have two carbon literate MPs. <laughs> two? Who, uh, that's uh, Jeff Smith and Avzal Khan, um, completely not coincidentally, former Manchester city councillors where they were trained in carbon literacy. Um, no... Um, we are yet to um, tread the hallowed, halls, the hallowed halls of Westminster. We would love to. We do have a training kit for elected councillors, and that's in use across the country already. So any UK council can have a training kit from us to train its councillors, as well as its staff and senior managers, and that's underway. Mm, that's good. I'm just wondering if Bristol Council has yes. it, has done it. They've dipped their toe in the water so far. Uh, now, I, I stand to be corrected by my colleagues who, who are dealing more closely with, uh, with the councils. Um, they're doing a bit um, near to you. Actually, the exemplars uh, are North Somerset, Western Superman. Right. Just... They're not just training staff, they're immediately looking at how their ability to uh, train themselves can face outwards and train communities and businesses. That What they're doing in Western is uh, staggering uh, at a national level. As an organisation, the Carbon Literacy Project does not train. We introduce people to carbon literacy. We uh, then work with organisations to develop their own carbon literacy training. Uh, then we step back and generally do quality control by certifying courses and learners and organisations. We made an exception to not training. Uh, you might have heard there's a guy kicking around up here in Manchester called Andy Burnham. Yeah. <laughs> Got a bit of a name for himself, um, our mayor. And he was asking what organisations could bring to the fore. And we said, oh, we'll, we'll train some of, your, some of your public sector bosses. Get them in a room for us and we'll train them. And we did that. And one of the people in the room was the chief constable. 
And we started the training generally by asking the people in the room who were from councils and the NHS, etc., etc., as well as this police chief. And we asked them what happened in extreme weather. And with the chief constable, we said, what happens to your job when it gets hotter? And the chief constable said, we arrest more people. We have more trouble. I said, what do you mean? And he says, well, we have more violence and theft when it gets hot. I said, that sounds like canteen room banter. Exactly the sort of stuff you'd hear in a police canteen. Mm. And he says, no, we've got the data. I said, if you've got the data, at what point do you see this factor come into play and you start arresting more people? He said, 18 degrees centigrade. Wow. And the room went, ooh. And everyone around the table went, blimey, that means this is sort of part of our job. Um, we don't just want more, <laughs> sorry, less extreme weather. We, we really don't want more violence and theft. Uh, it's quite well documented mm. how uh, heat waves impact on this level of disorder. Firefighters know that this is not a future concern. Certainly in Manchester, there are more call-outs for extreme weather than there are for Guy Fawkes. Gosh. It, it, it's, they know mm. it's a present issue. Mm. I d and that's actually reminded me of, um, actually, my last question, I think. It, it, do, do you fight, do people have an emotional response to this? when they do this course? If you get the facts about the climate crisis in a credible and relevant way and don't have an emotional response to it, you're plainly not listening. Mm. The climate crisis will materially damage the good things in life. When I'm talking to a huge range of people that I talk to about the subject and carbon literacy, I just tend to boil it right down to more extreme weather from climate change will stop you doing the good things you want to do. Mm. And if you don't have an emotional response to that, yeah, um, there, there's a problem. Now, the flip side of that is that anyone delivering carbon literacy training has a duty of care to the people they're training because you're sort of dropping this mm. climate bomb on people mm. and you can't do that and leave them high and dry. Uh, this is actually part of my problem with the, the, the climate sort of doomists. Yeah. Um, you have to come with solutions and you absolutely do that with carbon literacy. It's why it works. It's actually a classic learning program. You take people through a zone of discomfort and take them out with that empowerment that you offer them the wherewithal to solve the crisis that you put in front of them. Um, there's many a person who's talked about uh, the best solution to climate anxiety that so many of us feel is action. Yeah. And what we do with carbon literacy is enable that action to happen at an institutional level um, and to enable people to find out what the best thing is that they can do. Fantastic. It sounds like you are doing an incredibly useful and valuable thing. Um, 
And we, if we, we like to think that it's it's really useful and valuable. Um, the great thing is that um, the constant flow of phone calls and emails coming to us saying uh, we want to know more about this from mm. right across all walks of life. And we do have periods in the team. Anyone who's immersed in climate work will inevitably have periods where you're going, oh, blimey, this is... Oof, are we going to get out of this? Are we going to have a, a, a positive solution? And then the phone rings, and it's another organisation wanting to get on board. There is a sea change happening. That's what we like to hear, a sea change happening. I love the idea of all these organisations just signing up for this. Um, Phil, thank you so much, and thank you for all the work that you're doing on um, just helping to create basically we need this is a revolution really we're changing the way that we live our lives and this is so important um, I actually caught up with somebody who called Lucy Meredith who has done the um, the carbon literacy training and she is not part of a big institution or organization um, she's an artist <laughs> And she's the first, as she puts it, the first carbon literate mermaid. Anyway, here she is to just um, tell us a little bit about uh, her experience of doing it. Uh, my name's Lucy Meredith. Um, I run Yorkshire Life Aquatic, uh, which is an arts and wellbeing organisation. Uh, we're a social enterprise. We work a lot in eco art and looking at um, things that affect the planet. We are also... Um, mermaids <laughs> um, and apparently I am the first world's first carbon literate mermaid um, and I did the carbon literacy course through um, sustainable arts in Leeds sale um, they they put me onto it um, and I thought it was a really useful course um, I, I think it's something important for everyone who's trying to navigate their way through the climate crisis to to do really because um you know on a personal note to reduce your own carbon footprint and to find out how to do that and as a as a business owner we're always looking to make sure that you know we're plastic free and and have the lowest carbon footprint we can get and you know it's just it's it's a good way to find out how to do these things um but also it's 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 good for making you see it as a global issue um you know that this what happens what we are doing affects everybody on the planet some much more than others even though we may not you know be be able to see that in this country um and that we need to know that we're all in this together so i i would advise anyone if you can do it to to have a go to get on board and and just do the actual project to do the course um, you can just make such a big difference, e even even starting small, because it, it is a you know a quite daunting thing to try and combat climate crisis. But we we need to do it together. Absolutely, we need to do it together. Um, yeah, thank you so much, um, Lucy, for telling us about your experience of it. And I've seen 
footage of Lucy being a mermaid in a tank is beautiful. Uh, I mean, I think they do lots of, as well as uh, art stuff, it's, it's art sort of in education as well. And it's, it's highlighting things like uh, climate breakdown, but in a way that um, excites people's imaginations and, and looking for the sort of positive side to it, which I think we always have to focus on is what we could have, the world we could, ha- could have as an alternative. Um, right, you're listening to One Love, One Planet. Um, I'm going to have a bit of music. message that I, I've been sent by somebody called Joe Musker Sherwood, who has had over a decade's experience of working in the charity sector. And she was the founding director of um, Hope for the Future, where she worked, it's um, growing the charity from a small project to a national NGO impacting climate policy at all levels of government. Um, And she has created a programme called The Rest of Activism. And if you are an activist or a campaigner listening to this and you are feeling burnt out, as a lot of activists are, then um, this, yeah, I think you will be interested to hear this. Hi, I'm Jo Musker Sherwood and I'm here to share a little with you about The Rest of Activism, which is a membership programme which supports climate activists to restore joy amid climate sorrow. For six years, I ran one of the UK's fastest growing climate charities. I was the founder director there and it was my way of dealing with the anxiety, grief, overwhelm and anger that I felt about climate change. It was essentially my antidote to climate sorrow. That was until I began to experience an increasing heaviness about what's happening in the world. I became jaded and cynical. Everything began to feel meaningless. And even though I was experiencing severe exhaustion, uh, I just kept plowing on because I felt too guilty and scared to stop. In the end, my body started talking to me and I ended up in and out of hospital and unable to work. It took me a long, long time to begin recovering, but eventually I did start to experience healing. And I was fortunate to have a great number of mentors, guides and teachers along the way who taught me two things. Firstly, that resilience building takes active cultivation, especially in cultures that encourage us to earn our place. And secondly, that we're not meant to do this work alone. Self-care is also about community care. When we are seen and heard by others and have the opportunity to do the same for them, the load is lightened, our emotions shift, we begin to see new things, good things we never saw before. And that's the rest of activism. It's learning how our work towards global sustainability can be personally sustainable. It's knowing how to be held as we hold others and how to enjoy all the very things we're fighting so hard to protect. These are the skills that we also need as activists and we are so rarely taught. 
Rest is where we can restore ourselves and it's no passive act. Rest is active and skilled and one of the biggest acts of resistance we can take in the cultures of scarcity and individualism that are driving climate change. For the past year, through the Rest of Activism membership, I've been supporting some of the UK's most influential NGOs, and now it's finally open to grassroots activists and anyone who is concerned about climate change. We meet weekly in person. I bring exercises and tools that most help me, and members bring their authentic selves. It's a wonderful combination. There's a whole lot else to the membership too. There's a whole library of online video resources, practice prompts that come to you via email, a buddy scheme to travel more deeply with other members, bonus sessions with guest teachers. The total value of the membership is £120 a month, but the exciting news is that I applied for a grant, which means I can offer the membership at just £12 a month to the first 120 people who sign up. So if you're feeling weighed down by the climate crisis, if you're feeling isolated, if you're grieving, anxious or even despairing, this is a place to receive support in community, restore your joy, orientate toward healing, both personal healing and planetary healing. If you want to find out more, go to www.climateemergence.co.uk or simply search Rest of Activism with Joe. Hope to see you there. Joe, thank you so much for getting in touch because I'm sure there will be a lot of people listening who will need that kind of support um and it sounds like it does sound like you've you've managed to strike an amazing sort of deal there for people because i know some people literally won't be able to afford 12 pounds a month um but some people might be able to as you said it's a cup of coffee per week um and it does look i had i had a quick look at the uh, the website online um and there just seem to be a lot of resources so thank you very much um we are almost out of time um next week my guest will be christina wheeler who is a filmmaker and she produces podcasts um called river journey um river journeys and it's it's wonderful it's her wandering along the river talking to different people along different stretches of the river Froome, um and it's a beautiful podcast and i'm so glad that she's going to be in the studio next week and that's really all we've got time for um until next week bye bye